Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast. We are proud to bring you another example of the great stories of hard work, perseverance, intelligence, integrity, and quite often good fortune that has brought us all to Bighorn and the life we are all so fortunate to be part of. My name is Marty Lockman, and today's podcast is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Sunfine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 75 years, whose staff continues to provide a level of service and quality which makes their products unmatched. Bighorn Properties, whose over 30 years of knowledge of our community, gives you a decided advantage in both buying and selling, one of your most important assets. Bighorn is their only focus, and that's just one of the things that sets them apart. Back Nine Greens, the leader in designing and building the outstanding products, giving you a unique and individually designed product for your home. Not only will it improve your short game, but it will give you a work of art for your backyard. Corliss Estate Wine, whose attention to old world techniques with new world fruit gives their award-winning products the ability to stand apart. I hope that you try their wine in the steakhouse and poorhouse so that you might enjoy for yourself their great wine. Most important is that all of these supporters are part of our Bighorn community and believe in contributing to our lifestyle. Today's guest is Dennis Franson who along with his wife Jeanette, have been members of our Bighorn community since 1996. Dennis and Jeanette have also been joined here by other members of their family in joining our community. Dennis's story has been one of great success in business, but also is a story of giving back to his community in ways that have impacted others. He is a wonderful example of the expression, play it forward. But let's let Dennis tell us his story. Dennis, please take us on your journey, which started in Luck, Wisconsin. My journey started during the Great Depression of the 30s, which, by the way, is much more significant than a recession. The Depression was something that was very poor for a lot of people. It was terrible. We were in a situation raised on a dairy farm, 10 miles from the nearest community. At that time, there was nobody had any money whatsoever. We treasured uh, a dollar or nickels and dimes And uh, um, at that time. You know, we raised dairy cattle, milk cows by hand. We um, farmed with horses. It was a time of Great Depression. But on the other hand, we raised all our own vegetables. We butchered our own cattle. So we ate our food. We did not have trouble feeding ourselves, which was true with all of the neighbors at the same time. But we simply didn't have any money. I recall living through World War II and listened to the radio. We all sat around and listened to the radio, and we got broadcasts of what was going on in in World War II. I recall when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and the speech that President Roosevelt gave relative to that uh, speech. 
also celebrated each time that we had declared we had won the war, the war with Japan and Germany. As far as my early years, I went to a one-room grade school, which was a mile away from my brother and I did. Uh, one other brother we had. We walked, it was a mile away, which wasn't a huge distance. But when you're in a first grade through eight years, uh, walking back and forth, uh, especially when I was an eighth first grader, and my mother would walk me to the grade school. And we had a one-room school, about 20 students to cover all eighth grades. My grade school education was just not very good. We had teachers in their 20s teaching the whole school of 20 people in all eight grades. That was okay. I didn't know any different. Then when it came time for me to go to high school, Frederick, Wisconsin was the closest high school about eight, nine miles away. That's the first day that I went to the school, although high school was the first time I'd ever been in the building. It was, I have to say, my high school years were basically miserable years. I didn't learn very much. The only thing that fortunate enough to do was I found that I was pretty good with numbers, so I took accounting. They had accounting courses, and I took two years of accounting in high school. So I, at least I, I knew a difference between an asset and a liability and a few things like that. My education is like uh, almost nothing. I have no, no formal education. Dennis, let me, let me ask you something about that particular point in time. You're going in the first grade. You're walking a mile. Your mother walked you to school. Now, some of this was in some pretty inclement weather also. I mean, this isn't like you're doing in the, in the sunshine all the time. So no, some, every day. Someday, every day, in the snow, any, any kind of weather, you've got to get to that school. And as you've said, when you get there, the education is less than perfect, to say the least. What drives you at that point, even as a child? Is there, were you bored? Were you, what was your thought process? And I know as a child, it's difficult to, to process all of that. Oh, I didn't feel sorry for myself because I didn't know any different. But on the other hand, uh, the neighbors, we, I was born on an 80-acre farm. And we had numerous neighbors in the area, and there was a, the neighbors would all get together probably once every week or once every other week, and we'd play cards. The adults would. They'd have coffee afterwards and socialize and got along very well with the neighbors. And then we had a church a mile away also I went to and was baptized and confirmed. So that was fine. And so we really didn't feel sorry for ourselves. But I, my dad wanted to sell a cow one time, and, and in order to haul it to the stockyards, the trucker wanted more to haul the cow to the stockyards than what the stockyards was going to pay for the, for the animal, for the cow. What I'm most impressed with, nobody had a victim mentality. The other thing is there was a sense of community where everybody helped everybody else out, I would assume, to some degree. Correct. And also, 
everybody else was in exactly the same boat. There was no status at that time. Everybody was in exactly the same position. Exactly. And we helped each other. So we would get together and thrash and put up hay and things like that. So we, the, the community helped each other. And that was wonderful. But we were basically happy with, with where we lived. And we had good food to eat. So that was very good. My mother was a wonderful cook. You're in high school now. I'm in high school, yeah. So I, I tried out for sports. I am simply not a very good athlete. Of course, I'd never played anything but softball when I was in grade school. So I tried out for basketball and football and so forth. And I remember the coach at that time. After I went out for football and I was skinny, about six foot tall, and I weighed 150 pounds. And he got four of us together, five of us together one time, and he said, guys, uh, and we wondered, well, why do you want to see us? And he said, you know, uh, you guys are out for football, but I got to tell you, you're never going to make the team. So we all quit. Of course, we wouldn't allow that to happen nowadays. But anyway, that was the way that was. And I had no reason to think I, I should have made the team anyway because I had no skills and no experience and I didn't know the rules. And so I was basically pretty ignorant a lot about a lot of things. And then during the summertime, we would raise pickles, cucumbers, and string beans, of which we would pick by hand, the family, and we'd haul them to one of the towns where they were buying pickles and string beans, and we would get paid for, and I remember getting a, my first check for $3.13 or something like that, which was a big deal. I, I just realized it turns all about money that, you know, if you don't have money, it's pretty hard to do anything. So when I got out of high school, I graduated from high school when I was 17 years old. And I didn't have any education, really no skills. My parents were both eighth grade educated. They were born in 1910, and they had eighth grade educations, and that was all. And all he could tell me was that you don't want to be on a farm. You want to go to the Twin Cities. That's Minneapolis to St. Paul, 70 miles away. Get a good job. And that's the only thing. My, they had no knowledge about college or anything at all. I didn't even, wasn't even considered. No, nobody even thought I should do that. So here I am, 17 years old, graduating from high school in the spring. Now what am I going to do? So it just happened that my dad had half of his farm was timber, timberland. I said, well, maybe I, I could cut wood or do something. And my, my mother was not anxious for me to leave home to go to the Twin Cities. and I didn't even know my way around down there. So I arranged to get myself a chainsaw. I cut down some trees of which happened to be hard maple trees, of which were very good quality trees. And at Luck, Wisconsin, where I was born, 10 miles away, 
Duncan Yo-Yo had a yo-yo factory there. And some of us elder adults will remember having a Duncan Yo-Yo. They're made out of hard maple trees, hard maple lumber. So I cut the trees in, in eight-foot lengths. I harnessed, we didn't have a tractor on the farm, so I harnessed one of the, and I knew how to harness horses and milk cows and things like that. So I harnessed one of the horses and drug the trees out of the woods. I got a local trucker to come and pick up the logs, haul them to the local sawmill, one-man sawmill. We cut the hard maple logs into lumber. We hauled them to the oil factory because I went to the oil factory and yeah, they'd buy it and told me exactly what they wanted, what the dimensions needed to be, and we were able to do that at the sawmill. Uh, and we loaded it by hand back on a truck. That truckload brought $300. I mean, it was like I had hit the jackpot. My dad gave me the timber. I paid, had very little invested. I said, I'm going to continue to cut timber on, on the farm, but you're going to have to pay your mother something for staying at home. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, I said, well, how much is that? And he said, for $10 a week, and you'll get fed. And you're my mother wanted me to stay at home. So I kept cutting the, the timber, and you know I kept selling truckloads of lumber. And all of a sudden, I had accumulated maybe $1,000 and staying at home. And hired my first employee when I turned 18, who worked for me until he retired, by the way. When I run out of timber on my dad's farm, I decided I would go over and talk to my neighbor just across the fence. And I say, Elry, his name was Elry, how about if I cut the timber on your farm and I'll give you X percentage? I don't remember exactly what it was of the income. Oh, yeah, he said, that'd be just fine. So that started my entrepreneurial business. So I started by doing that. I was a strong, you know, I learned how to be on the farm. So we cut the logs, uh, and we bought, started buying some equipment, and I went around to all the neighbors, and we harvested timber, and then we started cutting oak, sold to a flooring factory, and I started a pretty good-sized business. I had two or three people working for me when I was 18, 19 years old. I carried around a notebook in my pocket where I kept track of everything. So the timber business turned out pretty good. One thing I was very, very careful about, I never wanted to ever overextend myself. I, I wanted to be sure I always was in a position that I always could pay my bills, pay my employees, treat people right, and just the simple things of running a business. It turned out to be a pretty good-sized logging. I, I ended up buying a truck with a loader on it, you know, but as I could pay for it, but my overhead was next to nothing. So the next thing I know that here I'm, my friends in high school, they all went to 
a college for something or for one thing or another to be teachers. And uh, here I am all of a sudden within a several months or a few years, two, three years, I was I had quite a bit of money and was able to do things. So then I, I heard about a big tract of land near Rush City, Minnesota. That's where I live today. It was a big tract of land, about 200 acres, which and had and I went and looked at it, and it had virgin timber on it, great big logs, and I said, well, gosh, I wonder who owns it. So I found out who owned it. It turns out that the people that owned it had died, and their daughter, who lived in Chicago, owned it. Here I made a decision which had never been on an airplane before, to fly down to Chicago and find her, and just by luck, I got her, had her address, and I had a taxi cab driver take me there. And I go knocking on her door, and of course she, she had a chain across the door, you know, and she wouldn't hardly talk to me at first. And I, you know, here I am in Chicago, first time I'd ever been on an airplane, never didn't realize how big Chicago was. How do you, <laughs> that's really something. And finally she said, yes, we want to sell it, but I want $13,000 for this piece of land at 200 acres at that time. I said, well, I'd like to buy it. And she says, well, that's fine, but I, you got to be paid cash. And she had lived in Rush City area, so she knew the local attorney. So then I had a situation that $13,000 was more than I had in cash to buy it. So I decided the first time to borrow some money. And I needed like $7,000, and I had 6000 or something like that, and it was a big tract of land. So I go to the local bank at Luck, Wisconsin, where my dad had did business, my grandparents had did business. I had my account there. And I go see the banker, and I said, I need this much money. He said, oh, man. He said, you know, you're so young, and it's so far away, you know. And he come up with a whole bunch of excuses why I shouldn't be doing this. And so with a state of frustration, I, when I walked out of the bank, I said, someday I'm going to own this bank. I told myself that. Very prophetic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A question here. You're in front of this banker. You're asking him for this money. You've never had a loan before. He's looking at your age more than anything else, not your expertise or, or your ability to pay it back, but your age. And how do you sell him on the fact that he should be able to do this? I, I didn't sell him on it. I did not sell him on it. And so when I said I, when I left the bank that day, I thought to myself, I'm going to own this thing someday. So I went over to Rush City, the banker at Rush City, and I, I talked to the banker there, and he said, well, we don't know you. We don't know anything about the logging business. You know, we just don't want to do it. So then I heard about another banker, a guy by the name of Walter Jensen at Grantsburg, Wisconsin. I go over and see him, tell him my story, and what I want to do. He'd never met me before. He all of a sudden says, okay, I'll give you the money. And that started my relationship. 
with him. And of course, I moved to Rush City from home. I bought this tract of land and the timber, and we loaded out many, many rail cars of veneer logs. I had a portable sawmill come in and saw lumber, and we had quite an operation going on. But I learned the lumber business and the log business. I knew that pretty well. That's how I ended up in in Rush City. Well, then, I, at the meantime, when I was in Rush City, I met my wife, who at that time was an RN at the local hospital. And she was terrific, spectacular. And after a year of courting and so forth, we got married. Almost exactly one year after we got married, we had our first son. And three other children with, with a, in a period of about five years. And it turns out that, that she was very, very good about taking care of cooking meals, looking after the kids, doing everything around the house. And she really wasn't interested in my business. And I, by that time, I had one person working for me as an accountant. And we had one of the bedrooms in our office and at home where we had rented uh, working for me. And um, it was a perfect relationship. I mean, here she's very capable of cooking and sewing and doing everything that a housewife should do, which allowed me to focus on running my business and businesses. I had other businesses. I like to jokingly talk about that we had a reason why that we never even thought about divorce was because we had an agreement between the two of us that the first one that suggested divorce got the kids. Now still married to her for 67 years, we've never discussed divorce certainly won't be me. That's the story relative to my wife and children. In many of our podcasts, Dennis, you need that kind of support system in your life to enable you to do the things that are necessary to go and build a business and and become successful. Without that, it'd be a very difficult situation. Well, sure. Just lucky. You know, I'm one of the, maybe I'm not very well educated, but there you know, formally, but I've been lucky along the way. You know, when I come across a woman like her, that's pretty fortunate. So anyway, then while I was a member of the Rush City community, a fellow came to town, and I was part of the Rush City Development Corporation trying to develop things for help with the other people in the community develop uh, businesses for the Rush City community. And a fellow came to town with a couple old injection presses and three or four people was in the plastic molding business. I was part of the development corporation and we rented him the Ford garage that had been abandoned and he had his equipment there and so forth. And he was a great guy. I mean, I really, I, I liked him a lot. A guy by the name of Dwayne Stenmo. And, but he just didn't, couldn't handle the finances side of it. He was more interested in sales and running the business and things, but financially he was, a, I guess you'd call it a disaster. I got kind of interested in it, and I said, you know, Dwayne, how about if I buy your business? He was in the process of filing bankruptcy. I'll bail the company out. I'll 
put in the funds that are needed. You let me run the office, and you run the manufacturing and sales side of it, and I'll put you on a salary so that you get paid. He wasn't even paying himself. I said, oh, that would be just terrific. Then we had a wonderful relationship, and we, I put in a cost accounting systems. You know, my, I created my own cost accounting, so I, I knew when we made money and when we weren't. And there was one person in the office with me, was accountant, secretary, or doing whatever, and I did the purchasing, and, uh, and in addition to running the logging business. And that turned out to be a wonderful wonderful relationship. I owned 90% of it, and he had 10%, and everything was great. Well, unfortunately, a few years later, he was interested in flying, bought an airplane. One night, he was out flying, and came into some fog, and he ended up crashing the airplane, killing himself, his wife, and his daughter, and another person. Then his family after that came to me, and I bought the rest of it, so I was 100% owner. So I have a, I have a plastic business in Rush City with, right now, about 500,000 square feet facility and 300-plus employees, many Fortune 500 customers, and we operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I have developed a, a daily P&L, of which uh, is kind of unheard of, but I had my own daily P, daily P&L, and we operate seven days a week, and, and we uh, make a profit every day. How did I get in the banking business? I had ended up dealing with U.S. Bank, who is a, the fifth largest bank now in the United States, one of their representatives would call on me and back in the days when they'd send somebody out to call on clients and customers and so forth. And Kenny Wells was his name. He said, Dennis, you're really doing good in a logging business and a lumber business or in a plastic business. He said, what else do you have in mind? And I said, you know, this is kind of off the, the wall, Kenny, but I think I'd like to buy a, a country bank. Oh, he said, okay, yeah, I'll keep you in mind. And he said, if you buy one, we'll finance you. Wow. <laughs> but it's him talking. So a few months later, I was with him at a Twins baseball game. He calls me over to the side. He had a bunch of customers there. And he said, Dennis, you won't believe this, but weren't you born in Luck, Wisconsin? And I said, yeah. He said, that bank's for sale. Well, he said, why don't you go over and talk to those guys? And, and in the meantime, the banker that I had dealt with had sold it to somebody else and a couple other partners and, who didn't get along very well. So I went over there and made a visit with them, and I didn't know what I was doing. But I had some other friends at that time that were in the banking business that... Um, kind of coached me a little bit. And, and uh, so I ended up trading, buying that Luck Bank, of which was maybe $20 million in total assets at the time. So I bought the bank, and they wanted to give me the keys to the bank. Well, I'd hired one of the partners that I bought out to run the bank. He was really a good guy. And so I said, well, I'll come over and sit on the loan committee meeting every month or every week 
I'll be chairman of the board, but I, I don't know what I'm doing. And Tony said, don't worry about it, I'll help you. Tony Johnson was his name, and we, we would go across the street. We'd have a meeting, and Tony and I would go across the street to the Lucky Tavern for lunch, and he would educate me about banking. <laughs> so that's my banking education. But you fulfilled the promise of buying that bank. I know I had said that and really had not, never planned on it, <laughs> but it just happened. You know, we started looking at different deals. You know, ba small banks are obligated. Number one obligation is take care of your community, of which every community in the rural community where there's farms around is an island all by itself. And so you take care of the community, take care of the customers, and you get to know, you, gotta, you need to get to know everybody by first name. And we made loans. And I think the community started to thrive. I didn't office at the bank. I'd just show up a couple times, once a week and once every, and also twice a month or something like that. So I started buying banks, but I had a policy of being very careful of what I did so I didn't overextend myself. And the U.S. Bank was very good about well, for whatever reason, liked what I was doing, and when I wanted to buy something, they basically went along with it. It was amazing. So I'll just go to the bottom line. Since then, we have 40 community banks. We have a little over $3 billion in assets. We're the largest privately owned banking operation in the state of Minnesota. And every bank is profitable. So there's other, you know, I got ventured into some other real estate developments and things like that. We talked earlier, Dennis, about what's going on in banking now. And you said, as I understand, your operation is, of course, entirely different than some of these other oh, banks. It's yeah. very much about the community. It's very much about growing that community and the personal touch. And everybody knows everybody else, as you just said, the f by the first name. There's a concern at this particular moment in time about the stability of banking in the country. Any comments or any thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, compared to what we do, you know, we have... You know, we have no run on our banks whatsoever because there's very few customers that have more than $250,000 invested. Well, the big banks, you know, 250000 is a small number. They've got a lot of loans, and the ones that got in trouble are, are loans they probably should never have made. I mean, when now they start examining the loans, and you know, I wouldn't even, I'm a, so-called banker, but there's type of loans that we'd never make because I'm too conservative for that. We stuck with our game plan is small communities, less than 20,000 people, do the right thing for everybody. In some cases, you have to tell them no, but most of the time we want to say yes. The banks are, it's a wonderful operation. It's pretty simple. It's not something that I don't need a Harvard MBA to tell me how to run my bank operation. You said before, you're in the banking business, but you have always been an entrepreneur, even before that word was even discussed as it is now. That's really what you've been, is just... That's it. You know, I'm lucky buying the tract of land, 
finding my wife, buying bank deals. You know, I, lucky I took accounting when I was in high school, so I knew enough about financial statements. And then I create my own, and and now I've got 700 comp- personal computers out there someplace, and a couple mainframes, and a lot of techs running all that stuff. And so it's a little bit at a time over many, many years. It didn't happen all of a sudden. And it was carefully done. It wasn't that you didn't take risk because you always have to take some risk, but it was well thought through every step of the way. The worst thing that would happen because I knew I was like not to have any money when I was a kid. And the worst thing that could happen to me is I get into financial trouble. Fortunately, I have all that and several other things. I have no debt. Now, I pretty well, the last few years, have, have decided to, that I don't want to have debt because I, 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 my, philosophy, my thinking is that there's two reasons why people get stressed, and I don't want to get stressed. Financial stress and broken marriage. And there's two stresses that, that I don't have that some other people have. I work every day because I want to. Still to this day? Oh, yeah. I have a, three homes, and each home I have a, an office. And then we have a corporate office, so I have four offices, all identical. So this morning I turned the computer on, and somebody, you know, I can do whatever I want to do every, every day, seven days a week if I want to. We talked with all of this success, Dennis. One of your philosophies is giving back, giving back to the communities that you live in, uh, still having a personal contact with the people that you do business with. Yeah. And you and I discussed, too, you started in this one-room schoolhouse. Your education was almost non-existent, formal education. It was non-existent. It was a school of hard knocks. You learned as you went along. Yeah, obviously, a high degree of intelligence allowed you to do all this. But you and I have talked about today's colleges specifically, and also how you have given back to the community because we're losing trade people. We're losing people that do our electricians and plumbers and people that we need in everyday life. Please touch on this Uh, programs that you've been involved in to do this? You know, you realize when you're in business, you you start to accumulate money. The first thing you got to do was make sure that my kids are taken care of. Certainly my wife, all my four children are all entrepreneurs, two sons and two daughters. Something that we did that I didn't realize was why they became that way is that my wife always made a dinner at six o'clock at night. We All four of us, five of us, six of us had to attend, whether we liked it or not. We didn't put up with any, hardly any exceptions, because if she makes a dinner, we all are there to eat. Well, it turned out, if I look back on it, that all the discussions go on back and forth between the kids. You know, they're from five and a half to zero when they were born, and there's two in between. The, all they heard, j- just because I was in business and she'd hear some conversation and things like that, that's what they knew because of what they heard and what went on at the dinner table. Sometimes people talk about having a family meeting every so often. It turns out that we had a family meeting every night. It's, I, I didn't even think about it that way, but it was. And of course, uh, you know, I'm kind of 
running the show and telling them what's right and what's wrong. And then they, you know, they'd have discussions about this and that. And but but we got to we got to know each other very well. And it's not only those conversations, but them observing a good work ethic. Somebody who is, you know, involved, engaged, treating people well, those sorts of things. You see those things from just watching. Well, that's what we did. You know, and we, you know, we have policy. We don't lie. We don't cheat. We don't steal. We don't do any of that. I always have said, let's do the right thing every day. Every day, what you think is the right thing. And we'd once in a while, we'd have discussions about that, but and sometimes no discussions at all. But it went on seven days a week. What are some other businesses that you've been involved in during this process up till now? Well, yeah. Um, so at first, my wife, Jeanette, and I had uh, lived in an apartment above the furniture store at Rush City. And I, we decided that we're, I was in a position to build a house. Where are we going to build a house? I wanted to live in the Rush City community. Three miles west of Rush City, there's a 3,000-acre lake with land all around it. And here there's a nice peninsula on the lake that I could see that was part of a neighbor's farm. And I went to him and I said, you know, my wife and I want to build a house and we'd like to buy that peninsula from you. No way, no way, he said. And then he says to me, I'll sell you the whole damn farm. I said, oh. And I said, how much do you want for it? And so I ended up buying the farm. <laughs> well, it turns out that after developing, you know, I sold off the buildings there were some fields, but a lot of lakeshore bottom, and he left, and I owned it. And by the time I got through developing it, I ended up with a hundred lakeshore lots. You know, it went from farmland to lakeshore development. So I ended up with a hundred lakeshore lots, and then started building some cabins where people from the Twin Cities would come up. That's before Interstate 35 came through. So that turned out to be a wonderful opportunity. So then I decided that, you know, I started learning the real estate business at the same time. I got to know a banker up north, about 40 miles up north, a guy by the name of Frankie Gron. He calls me up one day, and, and I also decided about that same time I'd do some other subdivisions and buying land. I'm kind of backing up a little bit here now, but then there was another piece of land that came up for sale on Rush Lake on the other end of it. And I'll tell you that story in a bit. But Frankie Grand says, you know, I've got, and here he's a banker up there, and he says, I've got a thousand acres of land. He said that some guys came and wanted to start a ranch, and he said it just isn't working out. The Snake River is running right through the center of it. And he said, I know you do some real estate development on the lake, and uh, on Rush Lake, and he kind of knew me, and he said, are you be interested in it? I said, oh, okay, and uh, $110,000 for the 1,000 acres. I developed that whole project into five-acre tracts of land, 
We built shell cabins on it. And I spent many weekends, and we built a road through the whole thing, you know, over this thousand acres for five acres of land, and that was exactly what a lot of people that could not afford to buy lakeshore lots, they wanted five acres. I mean, having five acres on the river was okay, too, and for a lot less than the value of lakeshore lots. And so we sold that whole thing off, and I sold a lot of it myself by advertising and meeting people up on the uh, on the property, selling the uh, the property, and it it uh, turned out to be a terrific investment. You know, it just an opportunity came along that you know I that it just happened. That's all. A big part of becoming a successful entrepreneur is having vision. Because you see things that other people that may have owned the land or may have been in business there, they don't see that vision. They don't see what, what else could be done. Where did that come from? Is that just something innate in your being? Well, and because I, I like to say I'm not only an entrepreneur, but I'm an opportunist also. So when a good opportunity comes along, you know, I will consider it, but I'm not doing crazy things and making if I got to own it myself or I'm really not interested but I got a couple of examples of where I don't own and I've made investments but so I got in that real estate and then we started developing other tracts of land we'd buy tracts of land and I hired a guy to I bought a bulldozer and a road patrol and they were building roads and I had two three people part-time selling uh, real estate for me and that got to be another business all in itself. We were doing all of this before zoning. They had zoning at the different areas. Well, then all of a sudden, you know, after a few years, zoning came in, and, it, and I decided that's enough. We can't do this anymore because they had so many restrictions and so complicated and things that we, I just simply got out of the, out of the business. You mentioned about all of these other projects, and here's a project here at Bighorn that you were involved in at the very start as one of the original investors with Mr. Hubbard. Right. Take us through that period of time, because this is a situation where someone else is in charge of the, of the project. What brought you here? How did that all develop? And what were your first... Recollections of meeting R.D. Okay. Well, first of all, my my daughters, um, they ended up coming to California for two different reasons, not because the other one was there. Both of them got into business in in California, and they ended up with finding husbands and getting married and starting having children. They each have two children. And we said, you know, maybe it's time that we buy a second home someplace. And so there, there was only one choice is to come to California. And we decided to come to Palm Desert. And I had my son-in-laws just go around and look. I, I had set a budget of how much I wanted to spend and find some places and we'll come out, take a look. Well, it turns out I decided I wanted to go look by myself first. And the two son-in-laws 
my wife and I were out visiting the daughters and they were off doing something. And I said, well, let's go over to Palm Desert, Palm Springs and look around. And they had these places lined up to look at. And I would walk in and said, no, that's not it. You know, I would not, I've been in the real estate business. I don't want to waste other people's time and say, this is not, I'm not going to tell you, I'll think it over and call you back because that means no. <laughs> so I don't do that. So then I end up coming up here to Bighorn. Well, then Lorna, who is, by the way, a wonderful salesperson, and she's a closer. She knows how to sell. And I like her, I like her a lot for, because of that. And she showed me a place that Mike Federley had built, all furnished, right up fairly close here to the, to the clubhouse. I said, you know, it was more than I had budgeted, but I said, well, I'll buy it. So I decided not to tell my wife about it. And our 40th year anniversary was coming up during the Christmas season. And I decided I would surprise her with the house. You know, that's kind of dangerous business. Lorna kept a secret and say we just can't be disclosing who it is. And so I ended up bringing her out here 40th wedding anniversary, and the children all knew about it. And so we caravan and a limousine and drove out here, and we're going to have a party out here at Bighorn. And Jeanette didn't have any idea about it. So we pull up to this house, and here Lorna's got the place. She knows that she set it all up, and we've got a, a caterer there, and somebody standing with the champagne with, as we get out of the cars. And Jeanette looks around and says, what's this all about? This is, I don't, this is no restaurant. I said, no, it's our new home. <laughs> and I immediately said to her, give it a try. You may not, we may decide we don't like this, but I think we may. And if you decide you don't like it, I'll just simply put it up for sale. I don't have any trouble doing that. And we'll sell it and buy something some other place. She said, well, I looked around and thought it was pretty good. And she liked it. And of course, we're still here. So R.D. Hubbard is a wonderful entrepreneur. And he's an opportunist also. So I can relate to him. So he ended up calling me up after being here a while back in Minnesota and said, I'm looking at developing this property across the road, you know, which was desert. You'd be one of the owners. He put a group of owners together and he was the guy that running the show. You know, my instincts told me right away that you aren't going to tell R.D. anything what to do. I'd sit in on the meetings, and some people would tell him, we need to do this, we need to do that. And I thought, oh boy, he, he would just, he'd do whatever he wanted to do anyway. So I never commented. Only two times he asked me my opinion. I knew what I wanted to tell him when I, he asked it. He wanted to ask me what I thought about building the steakhouse and also the spa. And I said both times, I said, you know, R.D., you are a wonderful entrepreneur. My suggestion to you is just do whatever your gut tells you to do and do it. I had very few conversations with R.D., you know, and that's just the way he is, and that's he's okay. I liked him for that because I liked him, appreciated him being an entrepreneur. And then I became a partner over there 
there was not a lot of record keeping or a lot of information coming, but he kept sending checks. And for many years, because we, we, we turned that into what you'd call a gold mine almost, and we all were getting money. And so I just kept my mouth shut and, we, and up until, I guess, a year ago, the last check came. But uh, wonderful return. And I didn't do one thing at all. None of my information, nothing, because I chose not to. Leave it up to him. But there was a mutual respect, obviously, between the two of you. Oh, uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. But he, I don't, he didn't need to be my best friend either. And he wasn't, you know, purposely. You know, he he had a lot of friends and played golf and things like that. So, R.D. was a like I say, he's a wonderful entrepreneur, in my opinion, and an opportunist also. He's an opportunist too, <laughs> like me. Well, and as a member, you have uh, had a a good track record too, not only in uh, being here all these years, but. You also, as I understand it, won the member member a couple of times with uh, George Mace, I think, believe. Yeah, and we were the best of the worst. So we, when they divided the groups in half, George and I were always on the bottom half. I think there were about, but on the other hand, there were 40 teams each time, and we won it in 2007 and 2014. And I'm a lousy golfer, other than occasionally. Things start to happen, and you know I happen to, and George too. They say we ham and egged it. If I have a bad hole, George have a good hole, and we made some fantastic putts. Had a good golf host that was with us that told us where to putt on number two. That's the signature hole here. I, I know that um, a part of the tournament was I I had a 19 handicap. That shows how good a golfer I was, which was legitimate. And so on the second shot, I hit it past the hole up on the slant, and the flag was in the middle of the green. I had a two-stroke handicap on that, the only hole I had two strokes on. Well, it was about a 50-foot putt. It had to go up and down and around, and, and I putted it, and it went up and down and around and fell in the hole. So I ended up with a, a two on that hole. So you got to be really lucky too. That's what I say. Talk about being lucky. That was, and, it, and we did it. George was a good steady golfer and, and a good friend from Minnesota. And so we had a lot of fun doing that. I say we were the best of the worst. I also understand that you enjoy poker every so often. Yeah, I do. You know, I started many, many years ago with my good friend Jim Gagan and Ted Turton, Dan Sandy was there, and Travis Nelson is a, was a, our dealer, who is terrific, by the way. He's just the best. Kind of kept us all straight, but they wanted to play all night. These guys did, and I had a rule. I said, I'm going to play till 10 o'clock, and I'm going to go on home, because I got things. I was working. I mean, I had, you know, I had my office at home, and I said, you guys can come home at two, three in the morning and sleep all day. I can't do that. Because they'd give me some grief. I happened to be a winner. I said, exactly at 10, I'm leaving. But now that's changed, and they, we do it from from 6 till 9. And it's over at 9, which is terrific. It's not about money at all. And the rest of the guys, we don't play for a lot of stakes now. It gets to be a, an acquaintance, a friendship situation. And I've got so many people have died around here that I have known 
and uh, get so that I don't play golf and I don't know very many people. I'm getting to know the 13 people that play poker with us. And we had uh, dinner the other night, some fun talking about things and different things and so forth. And so I'm getting acquainted, which I need to do. Well, that's what makes this a great community, is that there's options and it's not just a development. This is a real community where people live and interact. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. What do you look for in people that work with you and for you? Well, first of all, they they got to be willing to to work. Hopefully, we can provide them a job that they're interested in, or we can provide some future for for people to be supervisors and so forth. Because I've got thirteen hundred employees now. We want to see people be successful. Try to pick out the right ones, and and I currently, I, you know, I'm not involved in hiring people anymore. But that's what I put together the right right people. And I have a policy which has worked very, very well. Everything I do is pretty simple. I've got about 50 locations where I have employees working. And every one of them I've set up as a profit center. Number one thing, they have to make a profit because you can do everything wonderful for the community and the employees and everything else. But if you don't make a profit, sooner or later, it's going to die. And so uh, that's number one. Profitability is what counts, and of course. And what I, what I do is there's meetings at each location. And I'm not at these meetings anymore. And every, not every year, but every month, the financial statement is reviewed. I have a deal set up with the key people. They each get a small percentage of the profitability. And it's disclosed to them each month, not, not semi-annually or annually, because everybody will know what happened last month. But they aren't going to know what happened six months ago. They'll forget and be wrong opinions. That has worked out perfectly because we had their bonus, the next payroll check. So 52 times a year, they get a bonus. If we have a terrific month, uh, the happier we are. The months that we don't like, if you got a bad month and nobody makes a bonus, or you want to do something about it, and including the employees, because they are going to get a bonus next week, it truly motivates people without exception. We make it significant, too. My policy is the more you make, the better, I'm, the happier I'm going to be. If you don't have any, I'm not going to be very happy. Well, and it's immediate gratification and also immediate attention to a problem that may exist. Or an opportunity. And not waiting for, another, for the year to be over before you address those things. Yeah. And we also realize that you just can't gouge people. You've got to do the right thing because you've got to take care of the customers. And that's what you've got to keep happy customers and happy employees at the same time. The customer's got to be taken care of, but they all want to work together and they communicate better. And Well, it's just so simple. That works for me. And it's been successful. Tell me about the people that have had the greatest influence on your life. Being an entrepreneur myself, I got an opportunity to do business with the premier entrepreneurs in Minnesota throughout the years. Carl Polad, for one, he was a 
terrific entrepreneur, and he owned a whole bunch of banks and other businesses. I mean, he was really good. So I wanted to buy a bank from him, and I just out of the blue called up his office in the Twin Cities, and I didn't know him, of course. said, I'd like to buy the bank at Braham, Minnesota, if you have an interest. Well, first of all, I had to convince the guy on the other end that I'm for real. And I, and I said, I own some other banks and so forth. And he finally said, oh, okay, come on down and we set an appointment up. And I visited with him and, uh, about it. And he finally says, you know, you need to talk to Carl. It was like about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And so Carl is in another office. And then we started exchanging stories. And he had, his story was as similar to mine. You know, how he started. We talked till 6 o'clock at night. He was from Iowa, and he had different banks here, there, and everywhere. And then in the end, he um, calls in his guy and says, sell friends in that bank, but further, but I think you need to buy one more we've got. That's how it happened. And, the, and his lieutenants, of course, Carl told him what he wanted. I decided it was a fair price. I bought two banks from him and an insurance agency. I never have talked to him since, but I had a two-hour conversation with him, which I thought was great. And then, of course, you've got Glenn Taylor, who owns the Minnesota Timberwolves. I was a big Timberwolves fan and had floor seats. I've had floor, from the very beginning. And Glenn decided that he wanted to buy the Minnesota Timberwolves, and he knew of me. And he called me up one day and said, you know, I'm going to put a group together. We're going to buy the Timberwolves. And I, he said, I'd like to have you as one of my minority partners. Well, again, it's kind of like with R.D., the same situation <laughs> with Glenn Taylor. And he, he's alive today and still owns the Timberwolves, but was in the process of selling them. He uh, bought the Timberwolves. And, you know, people tell me that I was an, uh, the owner, but I'm not the owner. I'm a minority owner. <laughs> I kept reminding people of that. And I got to know him, Glenn. He also owned a group of banks in southern Minnesota. He's from Mankato, Minnesota, including the bank at Mankato and New Ulm and Hector and Fairfax, and about five, six banks. He had all of the owners, minority owners, about 10 of us, out to the All-Star game in, in New York City that year. And he and I are sitting side by side on a, a bus in downtown New York City in gridlock going to the All-Star game or going out for dinner or whatever. And we started visiting, and he's another entrepreneur and an opportunist. Just We're both the same. He said, you know, I, I got a big printing operation. He said, you know, I don't know if I like the banking business or not. He said, I, I'm really not that interested in running that and so forth. So I pulled out an envelope out of my pocket. I had a suit coat on. And I said, well, Glenn, how about if, if I buy them, your banks? Well, you know, and he happened to have some information with him in his briefcase, naturally. And he starts to tell me about his banks, and it was a big deal. I, I had six or seven banks at the time, and I think this was like six banks that he owned. And I said, you know, provided that the loan portfolio is good and everything is good. And he says, as far as I know it is, 
But he said, I don't know. But he thinks he'd been told it was. And I come up with a price of, I think, $35 million at that time. And he said, okay, you can pull it off. I said, I don't have $35 million. You know, most of it, most of it I'm going to have to borrow. I did have a policy of when I was borrowing money to go, instead of waiting for the banker to come and see me, myself and my CFO would go to the bank, U.S. Bank. It was first in Minneapolis, but now it's U.S. Bank. We'd go to their office and I'd do a complete undressing, financial undressing about myself, my children, everything possible. And that turned out to be a lucky, a stroke of luck for choosing to do that because the, the different lenders would come in and sit in on it. We did, an, we did overheads. We spent about an hour in their conference room downtown Minneapolis going through everything. And Jack Grundhofer, the CEO, even sat in on that meeting. Well, it happened that I had been there two weeks prior to the U.S. Bank. Jose Perez was my manager at that time. And I called up Jose and said, Jose, you know, this is, a, this is really going to be a stretch, but I need like $25 million. And I told him this is a secret because we can't be talking. We don't talk about banks that, that, unless we own them. And he said, I'll call you back tomorrow. I'll, we'll talk about it here and I'll let you know. That was really a big stretch financially. The next day he called me up and said, we'll do it. One condition, that we send an auditor along when you do diligence on these banks to be sure that the loan portfolios and everything is okay. And well, I said, that's perfect because if it's not okay for you, it's not okay for me. So we, I sent my guys out that my people that do diligence, and they had a, a, an auditor with, and they come back and said, it's, it's, what, it's great shape, they're good shape. So I borrowed a huge sum of money and bought these banks from Glenn Taylor on the back of an envelope sitting downtown New York City. Now, how do you like that one? Great story. Tell me, Dennis, with everything you've accomplished, as you've already mentioned, you're not through working. You go to the office all the time. It's 20 feet away from my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> it makes the commute easier. Tell me this. I know there's a program that you're involved in. We touched on it earlier, but I'd like you to talk to our audience about this program where you send qualified people to trade schools within your community. Well, first of all, I do not necessarily send qualified people. So I realized after attending a high school graduation, certain students were getting awards. Well, it turns out that I realized they're the top of the class, generally. Awards to go here, awards to go there. They're valedictorians, they're salutatorians, and they've, done, they've been captain of the football team and so forth. I decided, to, what about the rest of them? And I also decided, you know, that trade schools is because I didn't have any of my children go to, nor did I, maybe trade school is the way to go, to send kids to trade schools. And I called up the local trade school at Pine City and discussed that with them. And so the trade school, that seemed like the, the way to go. I 
decided, and they told me about how much it would cost per student. So I decided to furnish the Rush City High School, where I live and have a business. I'm going to offer every graduating student an opportunity to go to a trade school. There were about 50 graduating students, which, uh, and I, I knew how much it would cost. I called up the CEO of the trade school. That's a big state trade school, you know, and he just about said that, you're gonna go, every one? I said, yes, every one I'm gonna make that offer to. So then we decided to have a meeting to get the students together, have a student and meet the parents. So I drive up to the Rush City High School and here's two TV stations stationed out front. One from you know CBS, NBC, or whoever from the local Twin Cities, because somebody had heard about this offer that I was going to make. Here I'm on television for crying out loud. I was prepared for that, making this offer. It's national news that night. It was on national TV because I happened to offer that. The statistics are now that uh, I think about half of the students took me up on it. I don't care what their color is, how they did in school. Every student got an offer, and they can choose to do it. Well, it just turned out to be about the most successful thing I've ever done. So I get about 50% of the students that have applied for it. And for a two-year program, I am paying for 100%, and I've been at it now for five years. And then I come to find out that there's a, what they call a Pell Grant that the U.S. government has for the people with the, the poorest of the poor families. Their students are almost paid for 100%. So it turned out to be such a, a good deal that I, have now, I am now offering it to five high schools. I have 200 students in... Uh, in the two years. And, um, you know, it's just uh, every, it's just a great, satisfying thing for me to do. So, uh, and fortunately, I can afford to do it. And, uh, you know, you put 200, give 200 students an opportunity to do something like that. And it's not as expensive as a person would think because you end up, uh, you know, uh, out of the 200 students that are there, probably uh, 10% of them will not graduate or not finish, but nothing I can do about it. So we're, you know, that's, uh, we got five high schools and we're offering that to, uh, no questions asked. I don't care if you're, they aren't qualified you asked about a qualification. We don't ask for qualifications because a young student, he can be a wonderful at fixing cars, as an example, and be a terrible high school student. And he can go to trade school and learn how to be run the computers to fix cars. Or they're electricians or plumbers. I got one person, one female, that was valedictorian of her class, went to school, Took, took me up on it, is learning how to fly a helicopter. 
for for the um, the ambulance services where they have helicopters. It's just been just uh, amazing. Uh, if there's anybody out that's hearing this that would like know, to know more about it, I certainly would be happy to get together with who you are and have a meeting, and we can talk about the specific details of it. But it's, it is probably the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Dennis, the last question I'm going to ask you today, and again, I know that there's more to this than what we've even touched on, um, and I certainly welcome you to come back any other time to, to be with us. But the last question today is what I ask everyone at the end. What would you tell the 20-year-old Dennis Franzen today? First thing I would do, I'm caught up in economics. Don't get caught up in credit cards. And so that you're paying 20-some percent interest. If you can pay your bill every month, they're wonderful. But if you can't pay them every month, if you can't pay them, don't borrow money by, by credit cards. And I, I, I think people need to get, in, get some instruction about personal finance. Because, you know, these 20-year-olds, these, these they're going to have families and children, and, and they're going to learn how to manage money they're, they, and how much money they should make and what, they, and what careers they should have. Not something that they think is fun, but think about economics. Money is going to be a big part of your life and how you manage and budget and things like that. Got to learn that. Great advice. Dennis, thank you so much for coming in today. I know that you are a private person. For you to come in and share your experiences, your life, your life lessons, I really appreciated it. It's going to be great lessons to everybody that listens to this podcast for sure. Well, hopefully somebody will listen to what I had to say. And if they can, they won't ever talk about it, anything I'll happy to talk to them about it, but it's pretty simple. You know, I'm, you know, I'm unge uneducated, happen to be wealthy now, so that's, and lucky, and lucky. And folks, after you listen to this, if you see him around campus, go up and say hi. This is a wonderful human being. Thank you. Thank you. Dennis, thank you so much for being a part of the Bighorn Podcast. Your story is inspirational, and I know by sharing your story, it will have an impact on others. We are proud that you are a part of the Bighorn community. Thanks to Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, Back Nine Greens, and Corliss Estate Wine for their support. We look forward to presenting more interesting people with their extraordinary stories very soon.